Well, good evening, everyone. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And our, our focus in our lectures this year is on the theme of revolution. And our, our next two lectures are dealing with one particularly important and classic revolution, that which took place in China. And indeed, in two weeks' time in this very room, we're going to have a speaker from Stanford, Professor Walder, talking about the Cultural Revolution. But tonight, um, we've got Professor Chen Jian talking about the Chinese Revolution itself. And I'm very pleased to be able to introduce um, Professor Jian. Uh, Chen Jian is Professor of History at NYU and NYU uh, New York University and New York University Shanghai. He's also Professor Emeritus at Cornell, where he continues to be active, and he's a visiting professor at the East China Normal University. He's also spent long stints um, as a research fellow at, amongst other places, the Woodrow Wilson Centre in Washington, the University of Hong Kong, and indeed here at the London School of Economics, um, where he held the prestigious Philip Roman Chair in, I think, 2008-9, some, something, something like that. Um, Chen Zhen has written extensively on modern Chinese history and also on the international relations of the Cold War, and he's got, amongst numerous publications, books on China's relationship with the Second World War and its origins, with the Korean War, um, and with developments in the 21st century. But tonight, as I say, he's going to be talking about the moral and political legacy of the Chinese Revolution. He's going to be speaking for about 50 minutes or so, and then we should have a good chunk of time for questions and discussion. But before he starts, can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Professor Chen Jian. Thank you all. Thank you so much for coming to this indoor space in a not so cold, quite beautiful March afternoon in London when it's not raining outside. And thank you also very much for Dr. Robin Eintracht and also the Miliband program for inviting me here this evening to allow me this opportunity to share some of my perspectives about Mao and the Chinese Revolution. Or more specifically speaking, China's revolutions, and especially the Chinese Communist Revolution. What a year this is. And what a, a historic moment we are experiencing. This year of 2017, it is the 100th anniversary of the Russian Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. But I also would like to mention this 
is the 50th anniversary of a much less well-known and a largely forgotten event, revolutionary event in China. The January Revolution of 1967. It actually was an abortive revolution. It was supposed to be a central piece of Mao's great proletarian cultural revolution. It did not leave the stamp it should have left if Mao had persisted in his original mission statement for the Cultural Revolution. On history's annals, these two events, though half a century, half a century away from each other, apart from each other, they actually were closely interrelated. If there had not been the Russian Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 in the first place, there probably would not have been the January Revolution of 1967 that had happened in China a half century later. But the connections of the two, in retrospect, were highly paradoxical, a controversial. The great proletarian revolution, cultural revolution that Mao initiated, was supposed to follow the path toward socialist and communist modernity and beyond that had been opened by the Russian Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. However, the Cultural Revolution also occurred in a political sense, in a practical political sense, by challenging the very entity that was created by the Russian Bolshevik Revolution, namely the Soviet Union, the state of the Soviet Union that Mao had claimed to have deteriorated into a revisionist, anti-genuine communist state. Indeed, Anti-Soviet revisionism had been such a central political slogan that had prevailed in Chinese policy and society in the years of the Cultural Revolution. So how can I make sense of this? But when I'm telling the story here, I'm also thinking about something bigger longer. Some quarter century after the Cold Revolution, the January Revolution, you find the global Cold War which had prevailed in the world in the second half of the 20th century suddenly almost suddenly ended with the end of international communism as a 20th century phenomenon, with the collapse of the Soviet Union.
somehow the past created by the Russian Bolshevik Revolution as an alternative to global capitalism at the mainstream past to the modernity and beyond had been dropped. Interestingly, China survived, not only survived the end of global Cold War, but also was able to embark upon the creation and flourishing of a very large historical phenomenon now widely known as China's rise. And the China's rise was such an interesting and I will again say highly paradoxical historical historical process because it was such a hybrid. The phenomenon mixed all kinds of features, languages, values, and representations of international communism. It was initiated in the first place by the Chinese Communist Revolution that aimed at destruction, the destruction of global capitalism's worldwide reign. But it was able to change itself into something that was not only an integral part of global capitalism, especially after Mao's death, but I will say even during Mao's last years, already we find the signs of China entering the space of global capitalism by embracing certain key elements of it. I will mention this later. And also, the Chinese Communist Revolution throughout the process had been such a close ally of what we today are treating either seriously or not so seriously known as the liberal world order. I say seriously. I don't know if people have noticed that Xi Jinping's recent Davos speech, and he mentioned that China was seriously treating the principles of free trade. Not so seriously. Please read so many presentations of the president of my country, the president of the United States of America, what he is saying. He made the very advocate of the liberal world order the very actor challenging so many basic principles of the liberal world order. When we Americans do not treat the liberal world order seriously, the world is in trouble. So suddenly, I don't know if people find that I'm a, a little bit crazy. I try to bring all these things together by beginning my presentation today in a comparison, in a contrast of two 
revolution, the Russian Bolshevik Revolution, and the China's abortive January Revolution of 1967. I think probably I should first say something about the January Revolution briefly, because otherwise I cannot make sense of my presentation. In January 1967, the revolutionary rebels in Shanghai, following Chairman Mao's instructions, took over the party and the state power in the city, claiming that they are going to establish a new political regime in the city, creating a wide new space for the proletarians, for the revolutionary masses to follow Chairman Mao's course to carry the great proletarian cultural revolution to its end. Only who knows what the hell the end actually is. In early February 1967, they established a new type of regime named Shanghai People's Commune. They thought they were doing exactly what the chairman would like them to do. And they only found that. No, this time, the chairman, unlike his attitude towards the 1871 Paris Commune, which he praised so enthusiastically, the chairman was unlike what he did toward the People's Commune movement emerging during the Great Leap Forward years in 1958, which of course resulted in, among other things, the Great Famine. This time, toward the Shanghai People's Commune, the chairman kept silence. Not until two weeks later, the chairman finally told the Shanghai revolutionary rebels, no, you have gone too far away. He said, if the government in Shanghai now is changed its, now changed its name to Shanghai People's Commune, how about, the, how about the People's Republic of China? May we call it the People's Commune of China? And he further mentioned that, after all, we still need to depend upon the party, army, and governmental apparatus to run the country. Therefore, he proposed that. Let's change the name of, from Shanghai People's Commune to Shanghai Revolutionary Committee. The story here is with a huge and revealing meanings. Despite the chairman's statement, re repeated statements, Mao actually did not mean what he said in the final analysis. He said that the Cultural Revolution was supposed to destroy the entire old party state apparatus and now when indeed that was happening. He said, no, we should not go that far away. Mao's attitude toward the Shanghai People's Commune 
was just the newest chapter of a series of paradoxical you know, phenomena throughout the happening of the Chinese Communist Revolution in particular and the China's revolutions in general. So I must now go back to history and try to ask and try to come up with some answers. No one can fully answer those questions that I ask, but some answers of those questions. And the first is about the very origins of the Chinese Communist Revolution, or China's revolutions in a more general sense. Why and how did that happen? I would like to make a statement that China's revolutions in general and the Chinese Communist Revolution in particular happened not without good or highly justifiable reasons. And central among the reasons were of Chinese universalism in essence. Like the French Revolution, and like any revolution in history, the Chinese Revolution, and please people, note, if you notice that when I talk about the Chinese Revolution, I sometimes use a plural form, China's revolutions. And that is because the Chinese Communist Revolution was just part of the larger phenomenon of the Chinese Revolution and China's revolutions. And they happen, the revolution happened because profound insurmountable crisis of old regime. That, that is for sure. But in the case of China, when China entered the 20th century and entered the age of revolutions, this was also the time that the very survival of the Chinese nation was in crisis. In face of Western and the Japanese imperialisms, incursions and aggressions. And when the Chinese revolutions emerged basically in the 1910s and early 1920s. And you find there were the nationalists, Sun Yat-sen, Jiang Jie-shi, or Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalists. They challenged imperialisms, incursions, and dominations in China. Sun Yat-sen led the 1911 revolution to overthrow the Qing dynasty, the Manchu dynasty, China's last imperial dynasty. But what followed in China was an age of warlordism. And the communists entered the scene of Chinese politics, basically in the wake of two events. One, the Russian Bolshevik Revolution. Two, I must emphasize, this is extremely important. The coming of the Wilsonian moment in international history. President Woodrow Wilson introduced his 14 points on the eve of the Versailles Conference that concluded the First World War. And the Chinese, radical Chinese intellectual in particular, 
many of whom later become founders of the Chinese Communist Party, enthusiastically embraced the 14 points. Indeed, the number one Chinese communist at that time, Cheng Zhuxiu, who was the main, main founder of the Chinese Communist Party, later become for six years general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, called Wilson the number one good man under heaven. At that time, the influence of the Russian Bolshevik Revolution and the Wilsonian moment were equally powerful among Chinese intellectuals who had the ideas and plans to transform China. But then there came at the Paris conference, at the Versailles conference, major powers, one after another, Finally, President Woodrow Wilson himself yielded to the pressure of the Japanese imperialists who asked for taking over the defeated German sphere of influence in China at the Versailles Conference. And for political calculations, major powers and finally President Woodrow Wilson yielded to the Japanese pressure. And this triggered what was known in Chinese history as an extremely powerful, patriotic mass movement, the May Force Movement. It was through the profound disappointment of the Wilsonian moment that you find some radical Chinese intellectuals decided to turn their main attention to the Bolsheviks. And the Bolsheviks were attractive to the Chinese communists, or later Chinese communists, for many reasons. And one of the reasons was the announcement that the Bolsheviks would abolish all former Tsarist privileges in China which actually the Soviets never fully done, and certainly not under Stalin, but statements and words were powerful. Especially when you deliver words and statements that the recipients were most eager and willing to hear. This created an interesting age. China's revolutions were composed of the nationalists of the communists, and interestingly, in the 1920s, they established a united front under the banner of anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, to try to strive for a unified, powerful, and to a very large extent, socialist China, even by the nationalists. If you read Sun Yat-sen's Three Principles of the People, you will find it was very socialist. And why? Because different from the Wilsonian statements, which were so abstract, which were so politically correct, but in practice were so away from China's reality, the Bolshevik Revolution seemed to have provided Chinese 
communists and the other Chinese revolutions with a shortcut toward a kind of modernity. It really did not matter for the Chinese revolutionaries whether it was socialist modernity, a communist modernity, or whatever modernity. It mattered for them if it could be serving as the lodestar for them to come up with strategies and policies to make China get rid of the humiliating status and weak power status that China was suffered had suffered in the modern world. This Chinese Communist and Nationalist United Front did not last long. In 1927, it collapsed. What followed was a 10-year period of bloody civil war between the Chinese Communists and the Chinese Nationalists. It was followed then by another defining moment in modern Chinese history, which was a golden age for the Chinese Communists, namely China's eight years of war of resistance against Japan. Here entered this person, Mao Zedong. Mao was nobody during the early years of the Chinese Communist movement, or not so significant a person. He emerged during the Civil War period, the 10-year Civil War period, by creating a Red Army and base areas. Still, he did not gain dominant influence within the Chinese Communist movement. Not until the, the, the time period immediately prior to the outbreak of the Chinese-Japanese War did Mao emerge. And in the eight years of China's war against Japan, and you find that several things happened for the Chinese communists. And first, I must mention, different from the mainstream historical description people probably have learned, especially in China and even in the international academic and a circle, and you find that people will tell you during the, the um, uh, uh, people are told that during the war years, the Chinese Communist Party had emerged because the party was able to take the opportunity to concentrate upon its own development. That is not wrong. But what I would like to emphasize is that during the war years, there emerged this international anti-fascist alliance. It was during the Second World War years, you find that even before the United States of America entered the war, already between President Franklin Roosevelt and Prime Minister Winston Churchill. I must emphasize this time it was Prime Minister Winston Churchill. They signed the Atlantic Charter. If you read the contents, the, the, the text of Atlantic Charter, you will find in, to a substantial 
substantial extent. It was really a repetition, an expansion of the Wilsonian 14 points. Both the 14 points and the Atlantic Charter, and also United Nations declarations. They formed the very foundation of what is later known and called the liberal world order. We must emphasize, we must remember this. And you will find that why these documents are the fundamental, basic documents were important. In addition to free trade, in addition to maritime freedom, maritime navigation freedom, there were also national self-determination. There was also abolition of secret diplomacy. These were documents for anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism. The liberal world order was something that had transformed global capitalism, a main feature of global capitalism from the pre-World War II, pre-two World Wars age into the post-World War II age, characterized by the creation of world order, rid of imperialism and colonialism if not necessarily always in practice, always in norms and codes. This was clearly established. Let us remember this. Because otherwise, we probably will not be able to understand some of the more recent controversies, such as the ones between China and Japan. Why did the Chinese pay so much attention to history? Why did the Chinese emphasize the Second World War? The Diaoyu Sankaku dispute should not be read just in terms of the San Francisco system, which was created by the United States during the Cold War period by ignoring those fundamental anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist norms and the codes that the United States had worked so hard from the Wilsonian moment to the Atlantic Charter and the United Nations uh, declarations period to be emphasized. This is actually extremely important. And let me also mention Russia. Let us remember, the Soviet Union, despite all the dark stories about Stalin, he did one thing absolutely correct. He led the Soviet Union to stand on the side of the Allies. And the Soviet Union, like China, like the United States, like France, like other Allied countries, you know, Charles de Gaulle, even in exile, also embraced those principles. The Soviet Union, despite its status under Stalin as a communist country, it at one point also embraced 
the liberal world order, or at least a part of it, a crucial part of it. Let us remember this. And how did this have anything to do with China's own development? It was during the war years. Mao and the Chinese Communist Party were able to hold higher banners of nationalism and democracy than the nationalists. If you read Mao's war year speech, you will find nationalism, the communists were able to convince even a the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of American and Western observers in China's wartime capital, Chongqing, that the communists were fundamentally nationalists. They were still communists. But they were not lying, saying that they were also nationalists. How do we know? Just to check the later track of, of behavior. You will find they mean so. Even when they were communists, they believed that they were best communists because they were Chinese. They were best Chinese because they were communists. In either cases, Chineseness was there. And democracy. You know, unfortunately, if the Maoist quotations now are not always welcome in mainland China, and a substantial part of them were those of Mao's statements that he made during the war years. In today's world of democracy, the mainstream anti-democracy dictatorship is the counter-current. The world is for democracy. The United States of America is the example of us, of the human being, leading the trend of democracy. Quite a few years ago, some colleagues of mine compiled a volume entitled Chairman Mao on Democracy, which collected some Maoist quotations during the war years about democracy. It was forbidden in China. But those Maoist words were words. They were there. And they played an important role in creating a favorable condition, favorable conditions for the Chinese communists to develop rapidly, to change into a very small military force into a big military force, and to command the mainstream discourse in China during the war years and after war in the Chinese communists, Chinese nationalists three-year civil war. Mao mattered not, because, not only because he was able to create this um, political discourse emphasizing nationalism and democracy. He was also able to create a party and um, an army that was more unified and with stronger political and military strength than the nationalists. 
simply put, during the Chinese Civil War, you find that the Chinese communists were so well coordinated in military operations, whereas the nationalists were not. I know in today's academic world, in the general reader, among the general readers, and there were statements that the communists won Mao won because they were better plotters. It took more than tricky conspiracy for a revolution to get entitled and to win. Mass mobilization, which the Chinese communists were extremely good at, cannot be triggered, certainly cannot be sustained just by conspiracies and protests. You must have sophisticated mobilization strategy and any sophisticated mass mobilization strategies will have to be constant mutual combination between the mobilizers and the mobilized. Then there came the year 1949. The People's Republic of China was established. This was a historic moment. In Chinese, they called it liberation. What kind of liberation was it? At the time of the People's Republic of China's establishment, Mao announced to the whole world, yet first and foremost to China's own people, that we, the Chinese, have stood up. Again, you find that this Chinese universalism, Chinese nationalism, revolutionary nationalism, had found its position in this Maoist statement. For me, this is a huge legitimacy statement. To substantiate the statement Mao set up through widespread propaganda, two millions for China's post-revolution revolution or revolutions after revolution. The first is to change China into a land of universal justice, equality, and prosperity. So communism or socialism. But at the same time, also to revive China's lost central position in international community, to make China strong. You know, this is a, this is a tricky, tricky statement. Sometimes when I read this mouth statement, I cannot stop thinking about our own president in the United States to make America strong again. Still, some 35 to 40, 40 percent Americans, my fellow Americans, many of whom are blue-collar white workers who by any, any practical consideration should not support Trump. Trump does not represent their interests. Trump represents the interests of his chief strategist. You know, Mr. Bannon, Goldman Sachs, that's the people he represented, but he was able to pretend to be an anti-elite person. But anyway, back to China as a time. You know, 
believe me, when I read Trump, I find a little mouth living in his soul. <laughs> I mean so. I have, so I, have, I have said it so. I have said this to some people who personally know Trump. So, to make China strong again. And this actually had dominated the Maoist uh, practice. The Chinese Communist Revolution throughout the 27 years Mao reigned China. And in the first 10 years of the PRC, China ally, allied with the Soviet Union. There was the Maoist statement that China would be leaning to the side of the Soviet Union. That was rewarding. Actually, especially after the Korean War, when, after Stalin's death, and the Chinese-Soviet relations entered a golden age. Nikita Khrushchev was really China's very, very good friend. He and the post-Stalin leadership made a huge commitment to China's socialist construction and socialist revolution. Indeed, in the 1950s, history witnessed what I call is the biggest transfer of modernity and industrialization from one country to another, namely from the Soviet Union to China. The history had not witnessed before and most likely after. Indeed, within a few short years, China's in, in time modernity and industrialization level had been upgraded. Yet, toward the end of the first decade of the People's Republic, Mao took the initiative to split with the Soviet Union. And the apparent reason was that Mao was competing with the Soviet Union. The Chinese Communists were competing with the Soviet Union for the leadership role in the international communist movement. But the more profound reasons, I believe, somewhat, there were very, very basic tension between the Chinese way of perceiving modernity and China's world of modernity, and also the Chinese pattern of development. And Mao, interestingly, criticized the so-called starting model. Mao thought that the Soviet model of development was not really the most sustainable and the most fitting for China. In the 1960s, there came the Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution happened as an awkward event in China's own development. Before that, Mao already failed his modernity drive during the Great Leap Forward. The Great Leap Forward resulted in the worst peacetime human tragedy in history. Great Leap Forward, the Great Leap Forward was made for quickly doubling, tripling China's industrial output and by concentrating resources of the coal country, especially by extracting resources from 
the poor Chinese patents in the countryside to support the China's industrialization without now perceiving, continuous receiving support from the Soviet Union. If the Sino-Soviet alliance had continued, the Great Famine probably would never have happened. But what was surprising was that in a few short years after China had re recovered, or barely recovered from the Great Famine, Muff already found the momentum and the strength to generate the Cultural Revolution. And for initiating the Cultural Revolution, Mao announced that this was for preventing China from de de degenerating into a Soviet-style revisionist country, which had embarked upon capitalist restoration. You know, this is a statement in retrospect, especially from a 21st century perspective, extremely interesting because what Mao had obscured is indeed the fundamental difference between socialism and capitalism. How can socialism be so easily changed into capitalism? What were the material foundation for this? How about all those state-owned enterprises? How about the command economy? None of this was compatible with our basic knowledge of global capitalism, but Mao thought that, okay, already you find in the Soviet Union, despite itself, still in every sense a socialist country was already capitalist. By the same token, you find that later Mao could so easily say that by making China partially capitalist, China actually should remain socialist. This is very much a Donald Trump strategy, let me say this again. It depends not what the facts are, it depends upon what you are presenting the facts. Isn't it true? Mao was really a predecessor, again, of Donald Trump. Although I think Mao's final historical position in every sense should be much higher than my own president, the current president. The Cultural Revolution was for preventing China changing into a capitalist country. The Cultural Revolution was also for creating something new, very new, that the human race had never witnessed and experienced. It did not reach Mao's goal. Indeed, toward, after the January Revolution's a failure. The Cultural Revolution entered an aimless process for another nine years. It was toward the later stage of the Cultural Revolution you find that Mao changed dramatically China's international policy by embracing the United States through the Chinese American Revolution. This was a huge movement. And let me just mention, when China was pursuing rapprochement with the United States already in 1972-73, China under Mao was pursuing and then implemented an overall project of importing whole set technology and equipment from Western countries 
with a total value of $4.3 billion. That was in 1972, 73's $4.3 billion value. And by doing so, you are not just importing things, because by doing so, you will have to deal with something that Mao, China seemed so unfamiliar with, namely the global capitalist market. Where did you come up with the money? How about credit? How about dealing with capitalists, real capitalists, on person-to-person -person basis? Even more so toward the Mao's last years. In, in, in analyzing international uh, uh, situation, he put forward his unique three-word thesis. According to his three words thesis, the first word composed of the United States and the Soviet Union were the most advanced developed countries, and the second world were composed of those capitalist and non-capitalist relatively developed countries, namely Britain, France, Canada, Australia, and also both Western Germany and Eastern Germany. And the third world composed of developing countries, underdeveloped countries, undeveloped countries. Correctly, Moscow criticized the Maoist three words thesis as anti-Marxist, anti-communist, anti-Leninist because what it was abandoned was the key word, revolution. Where was the revolution? What it was highlighted was the key word, development. So you see, why do I think toward the last years of Mao, he already had embraced partially global capitalism after Mao's death, Deng Xiaoping emerged. He launched the reform and opening project. For Deng Xiaoping, China's strategic relations with the United States went far beyond the Maoist calculation. When he visited the United States in 1979, reportedly he mentioned to his associates on his, on, in, on his way to the U.S., he said, you look around, you find all those third world countries which are on the side of the United States, which are all developed, and all those who are against the United States are not well developed we shall be on the side of the United States. Somewhat you find that 20 years before the end of the global Cold War, China had already withdrawn from the Cold War. This began the larger phenomenon of China's rise. So where do we put the Chinese Communist Revolution? Let me make some reflections. I realize my time, so I would like to leave. I still have uh, four points I would like to emphasize, but I don't have time. So let me just highlight some of my, um, I think, most important points. First, how did the Chinese Communist Revolution, in particular China's revolution or China's revolutions, um, how should they be positioned in history? I believe in the final analysis, at the end of the day, they have made China and the world better. 
not worse. That's one point. And then, how about those dark sides of the Chinese Communist Revolution? There are so many. Where did the revolution go wrong? I believe this is because of two reasons, basic reasons. One, in defining the revolution's missions, you find Mao always saying, destruction is more important than construction. When destruction is being carried out, construction was already underway. Wrong. You cannot just destroy things without thinking about how to construct things. Destruction could be permanent. And what is being destroyed will not be able to be so easily reconstructed. That's one thing. And secondly, the revolution went wrong become wrong, more and more wrong, along with the accumulation of power and absolute power into the hands of the communists as the victors, of Mao as the person who led the communist revolution from victory to victory, especially up to the point of 1949. And even in the post-1949 period, you find that China was still able to register a close to two-digit annual national production, uh, total gross national products increase. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Simple, simple, simple statement, but it's a universal truth. Legacies, lessons, I'm actually quite worried about China's status today. China today is at the crossroads. Several times recently in China, when I was giving public speeches or internal speeches about Chinese-American relations, I always quote Mao to conclude my speech. I say, we are now facing a very big era. China is emerging as a significant world power. And the great era needs great thought and ideas. And the great thought and ideas will have to come into being through what has been proven by China's own civilizational development. It was during the excess age of the Chinese civilization, and you find that there was a time in the spring and autumn period, in warring state period, there was this intellectual phenomenon of allowing 100 flowers to blossom and letting 100 schools compete with each other. Therefore, I quote what Mao has said very correctly. He said, allow people to speak out of their opinions, the sky will not collapse, and you yourself will, uh, the sky will not fall down, and you yourself will not collapse. Shut up people's voices, still the sky will not fall down. You yourself, sooner or later, will collapse. And each and every time, more recently, that amounts to quotation, 
was deleted. That is hugely worrisome. And even more worrisome is the moral, moral legacy of China's revolutionary era. The Cultural Revolution was such an era. It followed a widespread mass movement in China in the 1960s called Learning from Comrade Lei Feng. And Comrade Lei Feng was a common PLA soldier. He was so selfish. He never thought about himself. He thought about only others. And he was set up as a model. And during the Cultural Revolution, and you find that when the mass movement was mobilized, and then it was called upon by Mao and the party to make revolution in the innermost part of everyone's soul. Somewhat you find that what should be the common standard of citizens is now upgraded to a moral height that no one can really reach. And the result of it was that people can only do one thing, that is to lie about the innermost and truest status of mind. And that kind of a moral legacy was combined with what was happening in China in the age of reform and opening to the outside world, when you find rampant materialism had wiped out any whatever remaining moral barrier had been there to stop people to think very low. And this had caused a profound moral crisis, the collapse of moral borderline for a revolution. The biggest lesson and also the worst legacy that post-revolutionary generation will have to deal with that. The maintenance of moral bottom line is much, much more important than the pursuit of moral high ground. So in my own writing, in light of what I've said, and in light of many other related issues that I have no time no space to discuss today. I think if we still believe that China's rise is real, and I believe it is real, then we must also understand that it will be a very long, very long, prolonged process because among other things, China still needed to get out of the dark shadow of the era of Chinese revolutions. fellow historian who happens to share
the same birthday with me. And he is a Russian. I'm a Chinese. So the friendship between us actually had, hopefully, um, presaged an era of a healthy relationship between China and Russia. Okay. Um, well, we've got a good chunk of time for questions, and thanks very much for making that possible. Um, let's just um, get an indication of who might like to to start um, asking something of our speaker. Um, and when I call you, could you just say who you are and where you're from? Um, this woman at the back, please. Wait for the microphone to... Hello, my name is uh, Josephine Harrowell, and um, I'm a member of the Communist Collective, um, which was established by Aravind and Balakrishnan. Um, I just want to mention that you can't really talk about Mao and the Chinese Revolution without talking about the developments that Aravind and Balakrishnan, who is a former student in London School of Economics, um, which he's led in the imperialist heartlands, um, in 1976, he opened the Mao Zedong Memorial Center in Brixton, and he led in the building of the first revolutionary stable base area in the imperialist heartlands. This is an historic event. Um, as you probably know, Aravind and Balakrishnan is now incarcerated in prison because the British state takes what he's done extremely seriously and they have framed him up in the most unbelievable way. In the same way that Donald Trump is saying that China is raping the world, the same way they have accused Arvindan of all sorts of unbelievable um, crimes which he has, of course he has not committed. So I'm just say I want to say, because it's very important, he's a former student of London School of Economics. Everybody should know that he has been framed up, and his work you know, was so okay. historic and so um, necessary that the British state took it extremely seriously. Um, and, you know... Okay, thank you. I, I think we've got that point, um, and I, I believe you've made that question at an earlier session, um, not so long ago. Um, and uh, thank you for, for sharing this information with, with, with us. And I will say, you know, in the world we are living today, you find everywhere, you find all kinds of events, experiences that are in, 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 in contrast to the perceived beautiful and perfect world we are living. And I thank you for speaking this out. And at the same time, I'm sure, you know, if each and every one would like to share those stories, and we can have um, many, many hours and days and months and years of discussion. And let's remember, you know, this and as an indication that the world we are living is far from perfect. Okay. Um, yes. Can we have this woman at the front? Just wait for the microphone. Um, thanks for your lecture. Um, actually, before I went here, I um, just checked your profile very briefly, and I guess you have experienced the Cultural Revolution. Yes. And um, I wonder if you can talk about some of your true feelings, reflections, or might be your ideological collapse at that time. And what was your, you know, and what would you think of the fact that um, China has not yet been um, carried out some 
very deep and critical reflections on the Cultural Revolution, and it seems that there is a resurgence of it in the contemporary China. Thank you. Uh, uh, thank you. Yes, and of course, I lived through the Cultural Revolution. I was, by that time, had just entered a middle school, a so-called a key school in Shanghai, and the Cultural Revolution came as a something, uh, you know, very exciting in one point and extremely disappointing another in some other aspects, especially because I was not from the so-called red category family. But the Cultural Revolution was also an education, self-education process, if I remember it. I was twice put into prison for committing no crime at all. I was a dissident student, as regarded by the authorities. And that was simply because, beginning sometime in 1968, myself and my fellow students in my middle school started asking some very basic questions. And some of the questions was really about what in the final analysis was the purpose of the Cultural Revolution. And we, at that time, we never dared to question the correctness of Chairman Mao. But a free thinking, critical thinking alone, were more than sufficient to become the reason to purge myself and some of my fellow students. And I say it's a self-education process. We actually, in early 1967, in the wake of the January Revolution, which I mentioned, we organized our own Red Guards organization in our middle school. So let me try to correct one misunderstanding among Western people, people outside of China, as if the Red, so-called Red Guards, were a unified, monolithic singular organization. No, it's a phenomenon. It was so widespread, so diverse. And anyone after 1967 basically could claim yourself as a red god. You never call yourself black god. You do not do that. So it was during the process we read, we read a lot. History of French Revolution was something so many of us read. And one of my eye-opening experiences was that I actually almost hand-copied the entirety of William Scherer's The Rise and Fall of Third Reich. And then, this was one of my uh, uh, claimed crimes. I find that there are so many similarities between the Third Reich and the China we were then living. So, um, it indeed... In the way, um, I, I was fortunate immediately after the end of the Cultural Revolution, I was so-called rehabilitated. But some of my friends did not uh, live to see or live healthy enough to see the coming of the new age. One of my best of best of friends committed suicide. Another one became insane. And he's still insane, even in his early 70s. You know, that is the legacy of the Cultural Revolution. So, having said that, I also want to mention one thing, emphasize one thing. In retrospect, I actually was quite grateful to my own cultural revolution experience. First, I did not die. I survived. That's important. And secondly, 
it becomes such an experience to allow me and many of my age group people to think, to think critically. We learned critical thinking through the cultural evolution experience. But let me emphasize, this is only my experience. There are many other people who have different kind of experiences. And I also have heard more recently in China, some people say they really longed for the cultural evolution years because everything was so rosy, so bright. I look at that people, I say, what the hell are you talking about? But that's their experience, not my experience. Thank you. Um, can we have the gentleman with the glasses up the back? I, I might start taking two questions at a time, if that's all right. So we have you, then this gentleman. I say who you are again. Uh, thank you, Professor Jin. Um, I am a student from the LSE Economic History Department, and um, since we are talking about this um, Chinese Revolution tonight, and I was wondering about your opinions on the social learning process before the 1911 revolution and the Cultural Revolution, because. Obviously, in fact, that before the 1911 revolution, China was in the transition pr process that the Chinese state or the Chinese society was, was actually um, transforming from a traditional state to a, a modernized state. So China was industrializing during that time, and the Chinese state was uh, modernizing. And the social consciousness, consciousness about the westernized, um, say, technology and um, political regime was uh, undergoing. And the same thing happened again before the Cultural Revolution, that China was united after the post uh, after Second World War, and uh, industrialization was in, in pro progress. So why, again and again, before and just before China made finally uh, industrialized and modernized, the society as a whole felt that they need a revolution to start everything again and again. So I was wondering why, like. China was obviously in a position transformed from the past to, to, the, to, like, to the modern uh, regime, but why the society or the social consciousness, consciousness felt differently from um, like what we see today? Okay, thanks. Um, succinct, if you don't mind, because we want to get a few in. Okay, um, yeah, my name is Wayne. I'm from UCL. So I'm just very curious about the general Chinese sentiment of Mao, given that he's still very much a symbol of modern China. We can see his photographs at Tiananmen and um, the notes on the Renminbi. So I'm just very curious about how they think about Mao and the Chinese Revolution. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, let me first um, um, try to respond to that question. If I understand you correctly, you try to make comparison uh, for the status and mindset of Chinese society before the 1911 revolution and then before the Cultural Revolution. You do mean the Cultural Revolution. And... Uh, um, Actually, throughout China's modern times, especially after the so-called happening of the self-transcendent movement, which began in the wake of the British and the French armies' occupation of Beijing and uh, destroying the Yuan Ming Garden, you know, the Summer Palace at that time, China, the Chinese, had continuously tried to pursue a path toward industrialization, uh, transforming China into a country of whatever um, status of perceived modernity. However, before the 1911 revolution, you find that China was a very weak country, and the regime was losing completely. The, dynasty, the, the Qing dynasty, Manchu dynasty, was losing its, um, its uh, legitimacy. And the Qing dynasty indeed tried to 
pursue reform and just like uh, the French situation, you know, reforms actually further nurtured situation for released forces for revolution. So somewhat it was the weak status of the state that had that contributed to the happening of uh, the, the, the 1911 revolution. However, even the revolutionaries were not fully prepared for the coming of the revolution. So you, you find Sun Yat-sen, who was a temporary, the, the provisional president, and he decided to let a strong man, Yuan Shikai, to be the president. And uh, after Yuan Shikai's death, the country entered a status of warlordism. So that's a the story, but before the Cultural Revolution, that it was somewhat different. You already find after 15 years of reign in China, Mao and the Chinese Communist Party were able to establish a highly centralized, extremely strong state by concentrating power. Almost every thread of power was controlled in the central government or more specifically speaking, in the hands of Mao. And uh, you find that Mao was in such a status. And you find, uh, I, I was writing, I have been writing a Zhou Enlai biography. So I always try to think the relationship between Zhou and his other prominent top leaders like Liu Shaoqi and Deng Xiaoping. And both Liu Shaoqi and Deng Xiaoping were purged by Mao. Zhou was not purged. In a sense, they represented the forces of the so-called establishments. Why couldn't they, why didn't they stop Mao? Obviously, they all disagree with Mao, but they did not speak out of the mind, their minds. And even more, they did not come up with a coordinated effort to stop Mao. To say that Mao, was, Mao had the charisma, to say that early on in the 1940s, the Chinese Communist Party leadership had passed a resolution according to which Mao had the final decision-making say on important issues, that's not sufficient. Actually, in my own study, I find that none of them were able to come up with an alternative main stream discourse in confrontation with Mao's discourse. Mao's anti-Soviet revisionist discourse, for example, combining two things. One is he always talked about the future of human race in another five, 50 to 100 years to what extent China will be changed into a land of universal justice, equality, and prosperity. And also at the same time, he claimed Soviet big power chauvinism against China. So he always tried to refer to the kind of um, um, uh, discourse of revolutionary nationalism. Earlier I mentioned Mao said, we the Chinese have stood up. Interestingly, in the Chinese-American rapprochement, which occurred in 1971-1972, that was the time the Cultural Revolution was already failing people's test of lived experience. Then you find some subtle change. The main stream discourse was changing from pursuit of Chinese China 
in, uh, changing China into a land of universal justice and equality, into something of making China strong. And this was further succeeded by Deng Xiaoping and now by Xi Jinping in his Chinese dream discourse. So there, there, there's some, some, some main, main difference you know, in the scenario you mentioned, and about Mao. Mao is unique. Mao was Mao. Mao was no Lenin, no Stalin, no Hitler. Mao was such a person that on one hand, he was so traditional. You know, whenever Mao tried to find supporting evidence for his statements, he referred to Chinese history. He read, he read widely. He read Marxist-Leninist classics superficially, but he read Chinese history books and literature consistently and deeply. So that was a, such a strange phenomenon. This was a person who said that he would like to create something totally new by destroying the old. But it was only from the sphere of the old he could find the resources to come with strategies, policies, and in the final analysis, movements to create the new. So where can find those sources. How can you use old sources to create something new? But Mao was also such a genius. You know, for Mao, the difference between global capitalism, global, in, uh, global communism were not so important. And he can so freely shift his representation between referring to Marxist-Leninist classics to quoting Chinese classics. And so one point I have not been able to further discuss, and let me now very quickly to go through, is that um, the end of the Cold War witnessed the, the collapse of international communism as an alternative to global capitalism as a mainstream path toward modernity and beyond. I said this before. But a international, a global capitalism has changed. Global capitalism toward the last decade of the 20th century was so, so, so different from global capitalism in the early 20th century. I think that you just need to use your common sense you found the case. And why that was the case? There are many reasons. Global capitalism was more capable of learning from global communism than vice versa. You know, today, there's so many Western countries, if we, 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 we include Scandinavia, Scandinavia countries as Western countries, in, in the UK, in other European countries, you find more socialist traits than in socialist China. Social welfare, social support, all kinds of, of course, those are in 
in, in, in crisis, in danger. That's true. But at least they had existed, not in China. You know, in China today, so many, such a large population were, without, were living without basic medical insurance or retirement pension. The overwhelming majority of the population had remained peasants. They were without pension, retirement pension. You find this. But I also will mention that China played a huge role in battling global capitalism. Indeed, global capitalism would not have been able to claim that victory over global communism if there had not been China's import. And that's a long story. And I have much to say. And I have written about this. So let me just stop here. Let's, let's try and get a couple more questions in if we can. Um, I just wanted to check that no one's over there that I haven't seen. Um, who have we got? Um, can we have that uh, woman with the glasses there and then perhaps this person with the glasses up the back? So my Do say who you are and so on. Yep. I, uh, I'm uh, a student uh, from history department at LSE. And uh, my question is an uh, um, elaboration of the first question. So um, it's about uh, our current uh, Chinese president, Xi Jinping. So he's uh, raised in the uh, Cultural Revolution era and personally suffered from the revolution. Um, so uh, on the one hand, we see that there is some legacy of the uh, revolution in his mindset. But on the other hand, we see uh, that the Chinese society is... Uh, has been uh, transformed profoundly. So um, what do you think the Cultural Revolution would uh, impact the Chinese near future? That uh, is the first question. And the second question is, uh, you have basically covered all the important incidents in contemporary Chinese history, but you left out the Tiananmen incident. So do you think it is not important, or uh, do you find any connections between the Cultural Revolution and the Tiananmen incident? That's it. Okay. No, these are big questions. Um. <laughs> Hello. Um, I'm a law student at the LSE. And there are two parts to my question as well. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so the first part is, um, given that Deng was the one who brought China across the threshold, um, dividing isolated communism and international capitalism, and also in light of Western historians like Dicketer arguing that Mao's policies, not only you know, in terms of walking towards date ends, but to also bring with it numerous tragedies, do you think that apart from Mao's efforts to break the chains of imperialism, China's economic growth, um, a miracle, was actually a result of Deng's policies? And second, secondly... Okay, given, make it a bit more succinct, the second one, yeah, because that's already... second one would be more succinct, sorry. Um, so given the, the schism between Western liberal historians and Chinese professional and unprofessional um, historians' accounts of Mao's contributions, do you think that either accounts is a representation of historical truth? Thank you. Okay. Now, there's really four questions there. There's five minutes, so, and I mean, me, you can either let me, let do 30 me, let seconds me, per question or you yes, can choose to... You know, Xi Jinping, certainly like myself, he was born the same year as I 
was born, and he received his education during the Cultural Revolution. Actually, I met Xi Jinping once. That's quite a while ago when he was Fujian governor. He invited me and some other of my friends, who were his friends, to lunch with him. I had a very good impression about him, but now I don't know how to read him. You know, they're conflicting, you know, signs of him. And、uh, let's see, let's see what's going to happen after the 19th Party Congress. And we will know much better about who he is at that time. But in the final analysis, he and as any other people like Deng Xiaoping, Mao Zedong, anyone else, who will have to set up his own position by his own behavior, let us hope that he will doing the correct things. Let's hope because he's extremely powerful, and also he's having his opportunities. And talk about Tiananmen incident. I think you are talking about 1989. Okay, and actually many of the Participants of 1989 also received their education during the Cultural Revolution, and 1989 was a huge moment in Chinese and world history. And what I'm concerned about is that teaching college students, I find so many of the college students from China know nothing about 1989. And knowing nothing is a point departure of coming up with all kinds of misperceptions and wrong understanding of the past, and those will form the point departure of repeating the mistakes of history now in the future, and this is not desirable. And talk about Deng Xiaoping. Certainly, Deng Xiaoping made a huge contribution. And Deng Xiaoping was not Mao. Deng Xiaoping was Deng Xiaoping, and the difference between Mao and Deng Xiaoping, one big difference, was that Mao had never been abroad until when he was already China's leader and he visited the Soviet Union. And he basically locked himself in the guest quarters of the Kremlin. And he, in his own words, when Stalin treated him badly, he did nothing but shit, eat, and sleep. And Deng Xiaoping was different. Deng Xiaoping spent his early years in France, and he still remembered this, if not for anything else. And one thing he remembered so, so, so vividly was the croissant that he had eaten in France. And that experience was a, was a very different. But Deng Xiaoping also had his own limits. I wish Deng Xiaoping could have treated 1989 differently, if not for anything else. Why? Did he decide to use force? There should be other ways to deal with the situation. What is the last question? There is another question.、Uh, oh gosh, what was your last point? <laughs> Somewhat, but really in two words. Succinctly, indeed. So、um, it is between the the schism the schism between Western liberal historians and Chinese professional and、um, popular histories、um, and their accounts of Mao's contributions. And do you think that like which account do you think or does it like is it a case that neither of them are a representation of historical truth? You know, hi- historical truth is really、um, under challenge now. 
and especially in the age of, of social media. And you find that the post-facts age has challenged the truth. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that you asked the question. You know, we go back to original documents. We are extremely serious, I myself, and some historians who are sitting here, like Professor Vlad Zubak, my birthday buddy, we go back to original documents. We read the documents seriously, critically, and try to come up with our own um, uh, understandings and representations. And in no circumstance will we claim, even by exhausting sources available to us, we do not claim, never claim, that this is only possible representation of the truth. We respect the inability for the human race to exhaust the so-called truth. And this is why the history profession is so interesting. I'm so, so, so proud and so lucky that I am actually a historian. Well, that's a wonderful point on which to end. I mean, we've asked you to do an awful lot in this lecture, and, I mean, you've, you've done a wonderful job of trying to deliver, not just telling us about the causes of this very important uh, period, but also to assess it, to look at its legacies and lessons. And I think in the process, you know, you've made a series of very striking observations, some of them about the paradoxical long-term consequences of the Chinese Revolution, but... Uh, what will live in my mind, perhaps most striking of all, was your observation that looking inside the head of one Donald Trump, there we find living the soul of Mao. Can you all join me in thanking our speaker, Professor...